You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Hey, good morning. We're in Ezra and Nehemiah today as we're going through the Bible in a year, uh, telling the whole story. My name is Dean, the pastor at City Church. Thanks for joining us this morning. Only two weeks till Easter. I'm really excited about that. Also, Good Friday, which will be in this building on Good Friday at 6 p.m. So please make sure you get your tickets for the Civic Center. Of course, they're free, but they're just doing a ticketing system uh, due to social distancing and all those type of things. Uh, So please make sure you get on that and also make plans to be in this building on Good Friday at 6 p.m. I love that last song we had a chance to sing together. It's important to know when we hear things about God being sovereign and about him working things out for our good, that we have to understand that God, the way God I don't even know how to really word the, I, I should have a pastor, so I got it the right way. <laughs> the way that God sees time is so different than how we see time. So we might go, well, how can that be true? Because I have this going on in my life right now, or I have this situation happening, or, or this is happening in our world or in our culture. So how, how can things be working out for my good? Is God really sovereign? But as we read through the Old Testament, we see that there's a long game with the Lord. His promises sometimes it took a couple generations uh, for fulfillment. And it wasn't like God was freaking out or he forgot or anything along those lines. It's just he is long game. He is eternal. And it's important for us just to make our minds have to go there. And to realize that, believe that, accept that, that God is in the long game. That our minds can begin to grasp. We're moment by moment, in the minute kind of people. And we have to make sure that we trust God, that he really is sovereign and that he really is mighty and powerful and all-knowing and is timeless. It's so significant for us to know and to believe. I know some of y'all, when you first started thinking about God being sovereign, you thought it was about your NCAA basketball bracket uh, that you filled out that's not going too well right now. Although some of y'all hang in there. Is anybody still doing well in their bracket? Anybody? No one. Okay, did anyone fill out a bracket? College basketball. Okay, if you, Wow. We're not a very basketball-y kind of church. That's okay. Also, today is a family worship. So now we have some kids in here today. Uh, so kiddos, if you're here, raise your hand if you're in here today with your family. Let's get up for the kiddos who are in here today. Join us for family worship this morning. Good to have everybody here. I still can't believe like five people fill out brackets. We're going to do a church-wide one next year. That's what we'll do. And that'll make it fun. So Ezra and Nehemiah can be kind of difficult uh, because the author assumes that the reader already knows the backstory. Just kind of picks up right out of the gates. So it's going to go, wait, wait, where'd that guy come from? How did this happen? He almost got to slow down for a minute. So we never want to assume anything here. So it's important to know that what happened before leading up to this time of Ezra and Nehemiah is that Solomon was the king. And Solomon had some good moments, but also some really bad moments where he worshiped idols, uh, where he uh, did things God told him not to do, like marry foreign wives. And when you see the idea of foreign wives, again, that's not necessarily meaning ethnicity, even though there are people from different countries. The reason why it was forbidden was for religious purposes, uh, because those people were not believers, were not the children of God, uh, were not God's people, and they worshipped idols. So the fear was that when that would happen, that then God's people would go and do that exact same thing and become idol worshippers themselves. So based on Solomon's sin and leadership issues and just sin in Israel in general, the kingdom became divided. After time, then they were conquered. They were taken as captives into exile. God had warned them about this, told them it would happen if they didn't repent of their sins and turn from their sins to the Lord. Uh, So now the people have been captured. They're in Babylon. They're in captivity. Uh, The prophet Jeremiah says it was about 70 years uh, that they were there. And that's the backstory that is kind of assumed by the writer uh, that you know uh, when he says this. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, 
in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus. How amazing that God is even sovereign over kings, sovereign over rulers. He roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, of the heavens, has given me all the kings of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, meaning the temple, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. God would dwell in the temple in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with the freewill offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. So the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God has roused, prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. All their neighbors supported them with silver articles, gold, goods, livestock, and valuables, in addition to all that was given as a freewill offering. King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the Lord's house, which was theirs already, they had stolen from the temple, that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and had placed in the house of the gods. So here we go. It's almost you can see the book of Exodus in here as well, that God's people are going to leave the land. And they're going to go back to the land that was promised to them. And God, like he was sovereign over Pharaoh, is sovereign over Cyrus. And here the people are being allowed to return not just to go back to Jerusalem, but to build God's temple and had all the supplies in order to do it. So the events and story of, of Ezra cover almost a century worth of history. And this is actually the last historical books of the Bible, which would be Ezra and Nehemiah, before we go into a lot of the prophecies and the prophets' uh, stories of how to live in exile that will take place. But the Jews have been taken to exile in Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar around like, in 586 B.C., but in 539, King Cyrus of Persia overthrew the then Babylonian king. So by doing so, he took control of this massive, mighty empire, including the territory of the former kingdoms of Israel and Judah. So in 538 BC, Cyrus issued a decree in writing that the Jewish exiles were free to return to their ancestral home, the land that was promised to them that they could actually go back. So after they arrived at the Lord's house in Jerusalem, some of the family heads gave freewill offerings to the house of God in order to have it rebuilt on its original site. So the temple's in ruins. The city's actually in ruins. They returned back to the original site of the temple. Based on what they could give, they gave 61,000 gold coins, 6,250 pounds of silver, and 100 priestly garments to the treasury for the project. The priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, everybody... And some of the people settled in their towns, and the rest of Israel settled in their towns. When the seventh month arrived, and the Israelites were in their towns, and the people gathered as one in Jerusalem, Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priests, along with Zerubbabel, son of Shetel, and his brothers began to build the altar of Israel's God in order to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set up the altar on its foundation and offered burnt offerings for the morning and evening on it to the Lord, even though they feared the surrounding people. So they're instituting already, once again, their acts of worship, as was prescribed by God for them in the law of Moses. So they returned to the land, and they started practicing worship as it was supposed to be practiced here again. They celebrated the festival of shelters, or bringing back the festivals, as prescribed, and offered burnt offerings each day based on the number specified by ordinance for each festival day. After that, they offered the regular burnt offering and the offerings to the beginning of each month 
and for all the Lord's appointed holy occasions, as well as the freewill offerings brought to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, even though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. That the worship of God must continue, even though the temple is not finished yet. Ideally, we want the temple finished, but in the meantime, we're still going to now, as God's people, worship our God. They gave money to the stonecutters and artisans and gave food, drink, and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so they would bring cedar wood from Lebanon to Joppa by sea according to the authorization given them by King Cyrus of Persia. Whew, that's the background. Okay, so there's three main characters here in the story that we're going to see in Ezra and Nehemiah. There's Zerubbabel, who actually was in the Davidic royal line. He's a descendant of David. You could basically say he was a king without a kingdom living in Babylon in exile. He's going to be a central figure in bringing the people back to Jerusalem and also building the temple. And then you see Ezra, who will be introduced to shortly, and also Nehemiah. So when the builders had laid the foundation of the Lord's temple, so it's getting done. The priests dressed in their robes and holding trumpets, and the Levites descended from Asaph holding cymbals, took their positions to praise the Lord, as King David of Israel had instructed. They sang with praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Look what they declared. For he is good. His faithful love to Israel endures forever. They're worshiping. They're responding to the goodness and to the greatness of God that it should produce worship in us. Then all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's house had been laid. Because of what God has done in his goodness, and we sing together as a church, we're proclaiming the greatness of God. We're singing that together. It's not a time to stand like this and stare. Like we're actually declaring the greatness of God. When we serve our neighbor, we're worshiping God. We're responding to the fact that Christ came to serve us uh, through his death and through his resurrection and his life. Uh, when we are generous, we are being generous as a response to the fact that God has been generous to us in Christ. When we forgive somebody, that's an act of worship. We're responding to the fact that God has forgiven us. The goodness of God and what he's done in our lives always deserves a response out of us, and that response is worship. But things, even though they were happening and rebuilt, they weren't quite the same. Something was missing. God would dwell in this temple in the time of Solomon, the temple in all of its splendor and majesty. And there were some people who remembered that because they lived in Jerusalem before the exile. A lot of these were first generation, you know, people who were born in Babylon and born in Assyria. So others that were coming back had remembered what it was like before. We see many of the older priests, Levites and family heads who had seen the first temple, they wept loudly when they saw the foundation of this temple but many others shouted joyfully. People could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouting from that of the weeping. Because people were shouting so loudly, and the sound was heard far away. So you have the older generation that's not as excited. I'm sure they're happy to see it built, but they started weeping because they remembered how it used to be. Something was different now. This was not them going, oh, back when we were your age, things were so much better. You know, this wasn't like, a, you know, TVs just changed so much. We, y'all also don't remember what it was like to have Cheers and to have, you know, all these kind of shows or whatever. This, that's not what ha what's happening here. They're lamenting the fact that something's off. Yeah, this temple's been built, but it's not the temple that it was before. Like, we thought we would maybe return, and then God would dwell in the temple, and we'd all be back to normal, and everything would be great, but something's off here. The prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, or we'll get to them down the road in this series in a few weeks, 
that they also helped bring this project to fruition, and much of their prophecies are about this time of building the temple. So the exiles had returned and had laid the foundation for the new temple, so mission accomplished in a way, but the older folks here are still lamenting because they had seen all the glory of the temple beforehand. So we see that in Ezra 3, the foundation's laid, and Ezra 4, we see some enemies trying to stall the project by conspiring against it, and um, the work was resumed once they proved and the confirmation of Cyrus's decree. Just some history there. Then the Israelites, including the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles, celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For their dedication of God's house, they offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, as well as 12 male goats as a sin offering for all Israel, one for each Israelite tribe. They also appointed the priests by their divisions and the Levites by their groups to the service of God in Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. Now we see true worship going into play, remembering who they were, reclaiming their identity. The exiles observed the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. All the priests and Levites were ceremonially clean because they had purified themselves. They killed the Passover lamb for themselves, their priestly brothers, and all the exiles. The Israelites who had returned from exile ate it together with all who had separated themselves from the uncleanness of the Gentiles of the land in order to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. In order to worship God, one must be clean. Why? God cannot allow sin into his presence. Thankfully for us as people who have received the ultimate promise of God, Jesus coming back, he has made us clean once and for all. And also he is perfectly clean as our mediator who stands between us and the Father. So we are perfectly clean in our coming to Christ because of coming to the Lord because of him. They observed the festival of unleavened bread for seven days with joy. Again, all these things are coming back again because the Lord had made them joyful, having changed the Assyrians' king's attitude towards them. So he supported them in the work on the house of the God of Israel. So only did the king tell him to go back. He actually provided the goods for them to do so. And then we're introduced to somebody very significant named Ezra, who is the central character of the story of them starting over. People of Israel starting over again. We say God's people. We're told that Ezra came up from Babylon. He was in exile as well. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So he knew the word of God well. He studied it. The king had granted him everything he requested because the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Again, we see the sovereignty of God over the king. That Ezra is being allowed to study and thrive and flourish because God's hand was upon him, and that hand is more powerful than the king. Some of the Israelites, priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants, accompanied him to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month during the seventh year of the king. He began the journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month since his, the gracious hand of his God was on him. Now verse 10 is important to talk about who Ezra was. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord. Not just know it in knowledge, but also to obey it. So he studied it, he lived it, and then he taught it. Teach the statutes and ordinances in Israel. So Ezra was given everything he needed to reestablish temple worship in Jerusalem, including sacrifices, festivals, atonement. Uh, so the, the covenant community, as it's called, would resume covenant worship for the covenant God and of the covenant God in community together. But something was happening here. Again, I said things weren't exactly what they thought it was going to be. The Jewish community was struggling to maintain its sense of identity as God's people. And they had been gone for a very long time. They had been influenced by the Babylonians. They had sat under the worship of pagan gods for 70 years. 
and they were starting to have just issues with, I guess you could say, reacclimating into who they're supposed to be. Maybe if you wander away from the faith for a long time, when you first return and come back, you almost feel like you're a baby Christian again, because maybe it's been so long since you followed the Lord or whatever it might have been. They were just struggling with that. See, the community was located in Jerusalem, this covenant community, and in the towns and villages in the territory of the former Judah. So the community was composed of those who had been away in exile for a long period, but also those who didn't leave, and then people from other nations who had settled there. So they're surrounded in this new place by people of other ethnic origins, and by ethnic origins, we, we can conclude for most of them, since they weren't the Jewish people of God, they worshiped pagan gods and false idols. So when Ezra arrived, after these things had been done, the leader approached me, the leaders approached me and said, the people of Israel, the priests, and the Levites had not separated themselves from the surrounding people, whose detestable practices are like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites, the very people God allowed them to conquer when they took the land. The pagan nations, that's who they're resembling now. So we go from temple, we're crying it's rebuilt, things are so great, festivals, sacrifices, and still more of the same. Indeed, the Israelite men have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy seed has become mixed with the surrounding peoples. The leaders and officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. Even the leaders are doing it. When I heard this report, listen to his response. He didn't say he got judgmental. He doesn't say he condemned everyone. What did he do first? He didn't even preach a sermon yet. I tore my tunic and robe, pulled out some of the hair from my head and beard, and sat down devastated. Before anything else, he was broken over the sin of the people. He was hurting and mourning over the sin of those in the community. Reminds me of Jesus when he looked down at Jerusalem where it said that Jesus, he, he wept, he, was, he, he mourned over the sin and rebellion and idolatry of his people. So the people are intermarrying with idolaters in Ezra 9. Ezra says in verse 2, the holy seed has mixed itself with the people of the lands, the surrounding peoples. We see this in chapters 9 and 10 that Ezra's going to confront a major sin in the life of Israel, which is intermarriage with women who practiced pagan idolatry. See, the preservation of the purity seed, the purity of the seed matters because the Messiah matters. And these people had kept genealogies to trace a line of descent all the way back to Adam and Eve when God promised that from the offspring of a woman would be a redeemer of the people who would crush Satan ultimately altogether. That line's come down through Abraham, through David. It just kind of keeps going. If the people intermarry with idolaters, the line of descent is endangered. If the line of descent fails, then the Messiah will not come, the world will not be saved, and there's no need to put a Christmas tree up in your, in your house. And this holy race, this purity of the racial line is not Hispanic or Asian or black or white. It's a spiritual race that God has made for himself that will bring about the Messiah to redeem the people of the world. So when Ezra found out that God's people hadn't been faithful when it came to this, again, he tore his clothes. He even bowed down and offered a prayer of confession, which he numbered himself among the transgressors. He said, oh my God, I'm ashamed for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. 
We see while Ezra prayed and confessed, weeping and falling face down before the house of God, an extremely large assembly of Israelite men, women, and children gathered around him. The people also wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, an Elamite, responded to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the surrounding people, but there's still hope for Israel in spite of this. We're going to confess our sins. We're not going to be defensive. We're not going to say, well, who are you to tell us? You're not perfect either. Well, what about this one time? They confess their sins in the hope that God is not done with them. Think about that line. There is still hope for Israel in spite of this. Why? Because God is gracious and God is compassionate, that he is slow to anger, that he is quick to love. And also he's a promise keeper. And they know that God has made them a promise that through these people, ultimate redemption for the world will take place. And they're saying, so we know that God is not done with us. There's still hope for us. So we repent of our sins and we turn back to him. Therefore, let's make a covenant before our God to send away all the foreign wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the command of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Get up, for this matter is your responsibility, and we support you. Like, lead us. Be strong and take action. Then the priest Ezra stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful by marrying foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Therefore, make a confession to the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the surrounding peoples and your foreign wives. It's so critical here. You're going to be my distinct people. I'm protecting the line, but I'm also protecting you to not going along with pagan idolatry. So they can return to the land, they can rebuild the temple, they can observe the Passover and the feasts, but clearly they need something more. Even the best religious practices and principles in the world still aren't enough. What they really need is a new heart, even more than a new temple, even more than revisiting the land. They need new hearts that only God can provide because they can work hard and build the temple and they can conquer their enemies by God's hand, but without a new heart, they're going to return back to these sins over and over again. And things were not good. We see Nehemiah come on the scene. The words of Nehemiah, this is chapter 1, during the month of Chislev, in the 20th year when I was in fortress city of Susa. He was in exile as well. Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. He wanted to know how they were doing. Hey, we hadn't heard much. How, how, how's our crew doing? Everybody that went back to Jerusalem, things going okay? What's the report? Temple built? Are they thriving? Is the city secure? Everything going okay? They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall had been broken down and its gates have been burned. Like, it's not good there. So Nehemiah is a sequel to Ezra, and the two main actions that occur in Nehemiah are the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem for security purposes and the recommitment of the returned exiles to fulfill their obligations to their God. And he hears things aren't great in Jerusalem. And maybe these people had returned to a place that wasn't the city of Solomon. It wasn't its all its grace and splendor where foreign leaders came to visit to learn. Instead, it was a city in ruins. And things weren't great. Many didn't even live in the city. They went into Jerusalem to worship, but they didn't even live in the area. And Nehemiah said, I'm going to go. I want to rebuild. 
when others saw them, when he got there rebuilding the wall, when, when Sambalot heard, one of the leaders of the foreign, foreign tribes or foreign people, that we were rebuilding the wall, he became furious. He mocked the Jews before his colleagues and the powerful men of Samaria and said, what are these pathetic Jews doing? Can they restore it by themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they ever finish it? Can they bring these burnt stones, I mean, these stones over here, like they've been in rubbish and ruin, back to life in the mounds of rubble? I mean, come on. Then Tobiah the Ammonite, who was beside him, said, Indeed, even if the fox climbed up what they are building, he would break down their stone wall. How weak is it? A little fox with little legs could stand on it, and it would crumble. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the temple singers, some of the people, temple servants, and all Israel settled in their towns. When the seventh month came, the Israelites had settled in their towns. All the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon. And he got done at noon so he could make it back in time to watch the NFL kickoff at one. Before the men, the women and those who could understand, all people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone. As he opened it, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen, Amen. And they knelt low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The whole community that had returned from exile made shelters and lived in them. The Israelites had not celebrated like this from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day. And there was tremendous joy. Ezra read out of the book of the law of God every day from the first day to the last. The Israelites celebrated the festival for seven days. On the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. What's happening here? We can rebuild walls. We can build the temple. We can return home. But if the word of God is not central to who we are as people, if the word of God is not central to who we are in our, in our motivation for rebuilding, then none of it is going to matter. So what does Ezra do? What's his main focus? Is the people being people of the law, people of the word of God, that that is the focus. That's Nehemiah's focus as well. Before anything else, this is not a book about Nehemiah's leadership savvy, even though he, he rebuilt the wall and showed some great leadership. This is not a book about a building campaign for a church. It's, 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 not, it's not that thing either. This is about a people first and foremost returning to the word of God because the people of God are always under the authority and the function of the word of God. And what an act of grace it is that God has spoken, that he has given his word to his people. So Ezra says, I'm going to stand before, this is what restoration looks like. We're going to stand, I'm going to stand before the people and read from God's word. And what happened? They repented. They returned to their celebrations, to their festivals, to their sacrifices, all because they were responding to God's word. But what do you know? Even though all these amazing things are happening, wall rebuilt, word of God being read, still things aren't good. Let's get to the very end of Nehemiah. It says, in those days, I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other people, but could not speak Hebrew. They could not speak the language of God's people, only the language of foreign lands who worship foreign gods. Now, it's really important. We just got to always deprogram ourselves. 
that when we read and hear things like this, that we get like some kind of American thinking out of our heads. You know, this is not some like case that if you move to America, you should learn English. Like, this is not what this is about. So this is, has nothing to do with that whatsoever. Like, it's so foreign for any of that. This is, again, is about religious identity, covenant identity as the people of God for these specific people. And the application here is they knew the language of the false gods rather than the language of their God. Now, God is the God of every tongue, tribe, and nation. But he's redeeming these people at this point for his glory and his story here. So we've got to deprogram ourselves for thinking this has any parallel in terms of some kind of nationalistic sort of idea. That's not what's happening here. This is spiritual, what is taking place. And then you get to the end of Nehemiah, and it's the last historic word of the Old Testament. The exile was not the end of the story, though, for God's people, nor their calling to bring the good news to the world. See, Ezra's going to stress over and over again God's providence and mercy of moving imperial rulers to favor his people and raising up new leadership like Ezra and Nehemiah. But there's still something missing here. The book just ends like that, Nehemiah. It's just kind of, that's the end of the story. You just kind of go, okay, and there's a temple and the walls are rebuilt and we're still marrying foreign wives and we just kind of go on with the story. But there are people to whom God has made promises that reach way back to the biblical story. Because once the walls are finished, the rebuilding task is not over. That's part of Ezra reading the law. Biblical history focuses not so much on a secure place for God's people, as much as it does the actual people who are dwelling in the place. Like safety for God's people is not his ultimate concern. The safety of our hearts is God's ultimate concern outside of his own glory. So in the midst of all the good things that churches do, we always need to remember that the first and foremost sense of our urgency should be a people who are about God's word and responding to it. Here's a, here, when you see Jerusalem in the Old Testament, uh, and really you see that God's people in the Old Testament, really kind of the parallel more than like, what does this mean for me personally? It's more, what does it mean for us? Like, what does it mean for the church? Like, what, what's the parallel there? And here's the question, like, do you care about, rebuild, or about building God's church? I mean, do you care about it? Are you willing to be mocked, misunderstood, inconvenienced, generous, prayerful, involved? I mean, under the old covenant in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, God dwelt in his temple by the Spirit. And that was the focal point of God's cause and his really rule in the world. But now that Christ has brought in the new covenant by his blood that was shed for us, it answers the question of something's missing here. Yeah, they got the building, and yeah, they're doing the rituals, but they're still off. What do they need? They need a new heart, and guess who brings that to us? Is God by Christ's death on the cross and resurrection. See, now the church is the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And I don't mean this building and these walls, but God's people congregated together through local assemblies. That's now God's focal point and cause in the world is through the church. So believers today should be as committed to the upbuilding of the church as Ezra and Nehemiah were, the rebuilding of the temple and the wall. Here's what's so neat about this church that God's building. The guy mocked Nehemiah about those burned stones. Those stones were in rubble. Like, how can you use those? There's going to be a fox that gets on them and they're going to crumble. Listen to what we're told about the church God's building. 
that Christ continues to build every day. First Peter, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, that's happened already, but chosen and honored by God. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. Old, burned stones. Guess what? That's exactly what God uses. Broken, flawed, damaged stones that he takes and turns into something glorious. And what is that glorious thing? It's his people called the church. That we're not the stones that go into a temple wall anymore physically. We're the living stones. A temple that God is making of his people for his glory and his mission. Now we are God's temple. And we aren't stones that just get put into a side and then you walk away. No, we're these burnt old stones that feel like they don't have much to offer. That God has made beautiful and God has made new through Christ. If anyone's in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. We're living stones now as the church. And in the mystery of God's providence, we have the efforts of Ezra and Nehemiah to thank, really, for all that would have come to pass later. Yes, God was sovereign. We see the tension with human responsibility. It's how God has used people. He would, they would work to ensure that God's promises would go forward. Again, it wasn't dependent upon them. God's promises depended upon God, so I feel really good about his promises, because it's not dependent on any of us. But the hearts of the people mattered. And that drew Nehemiah and Ezra back to the scriptures, kept them praying, kept them calling the people to repent, to confess the name of the Lord against false gods. They weren't just re rebuilding a building called the temple, a significant building, and they weren't just rebuilding walls. They're rebuilding God's people to know what it meant to actually live as his people. Not to live as people of Babylon or Assyria, but to actually live as the people of God. And in the upcoming, down the road, that we're going to be in prophets like Jeremiah and, and those type of books, we're going to see some real practical things, what it looks like to be the people of God in exile. Because we're also the same, the same Peter that tells us we're living stones also tells us we're exiles and strangers. That's the parallel from we're, we're always in exile as long as we're in this world. Uh, so we have finished the historical books of the Old Testament. We've gotten there. So I'm really glad. <laughs> but it's so important that we understand them because the point of Bible study is to understand that all of the Bible is for you, but not all of the Bible is specifically about you. It's for you, but it's not all about you. It's about God's story. So the point is to point you to who God is and what he's doing, his great name, his work, his promises. So a lot of times the applications from Bible stories is not what are three things I need to go do today. Rather, it's how do I think about God today? How do I worship him? Who is he? Who is the God that I'm supposed to be knowing and, and giving my life to? And we see here that he is the promise-keeping, sovereign God who has a people for himself and that this temple that he has built, yeah, it's not as good as the other one. It doesn't need to be because it's pointing to a different temple. And that being the church, the people of God that it was not built by human hands, but built through the resurrection, she's first the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through his blood, God is building the church. All those who call on his name get to be a part of it for God's glory and for his mission around the world.
So we got two weeks till Easter. I hope you're praying right now, inviting friends. I hope you make it a priority to be there. Uh, get your tickets because, again, they're claiming seats by social distancing and all that. Uh, so let's make it, let's, by God's grace, let's make it a great day for the church in Tallahassee, proclaiming the resurrection of Christ at a time of year people are willing to listen and talk about it. So I'm thankful for Ezra and Nehemiah that God is building through burnt, broken, rubbish stones like us. He doesn't see us that way. These glorious stones that carry his name that he is building his church through, the temples of our holy God. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the faithfulness of Ezra and Nehemiah, people you use, Zerubbabel, people you use to push your promise forward. Lord, we're thankful that even though we live as exiles here in a world that's not our home, that you are with us and you are building your church day by day. We absolutely found faithful under the word of God. We will not drift to idolatrous ideologies. We will first and foremost see ourselves as your people, that we'll love our neighbor, that we will love you even more. And we'll be a people of your word and of your mission. I thank you that you have made a temple out of living stones that is our lives, your church. And again, I ask that we found faithful for it. We ask that all the churches in our city as they prepare for Easter, that will be just a great day in Tallahassee for getting the gospel out and the church strengthened. We ask you to be at the Civic Center in our Good Friday service, that it can just be a time where people are pointed to Christ. Lord, we want to be like Ezra, where we see the, the idolatry of our city. We see the idolatry of our own lives first. And that will lead us to be mournful, but also lead us to be hopeful, knowing that you're at work and you're drawing us to yourself. Lord, we ask to see more, more people come to know you as Lord, more people saved, more people baptized, more people on your mission, more people discipled and strengthened in their faith and rooted and equipped. Thank you for this church, what you're doing here. And we ask it continues in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand up and sing some good news, and then we'll see you at 5 o'clock for our members' meeting tonight. So let's stand together and sing some truth.